you're a guest, we're particularly delighted to have you here with us today. And I want you to know, all of you, guests included, that one of the great joys of my life, literally, is gathering just like this. To meet with you, to meet with God, to hear from Him, to be challenged by Him, to know Him uh, more deeply. It's just a, a blast. And lots of people around here have been praying and working and seeking sort of fervently so that that happens for all of us here uh, today. And we pray that it does. Uh, we're doing a concert of prayer, worship, and healing that you're all invited to 7 o'clock this coming Tuesday night right in this room. Concert of prayer, worship, and healing. And this is going to be a unique worship experience. And when I say unique, I don't mean weird, okay? It's going to be unique, but that doesn't necessarily mean weird. We're going to pray, and we're going to worship through music. Uh, and the way that I'm talking about this is that one of the things that we're going to pray for is that God would pour out his healing, that he would pour out his healing. And when we pray for healing, all we're asking God to do is to bring his wholeness and his life into every single area of our lives. We're gonna ask God to heal broken marriages. We're gonna ask God to heal addicts of addictions. We're gonna ask God to heal broken bodies of afflictions. We're gonna ask God uh, to heal hearts of those who are living life far from God. It's gonna start at seven. It's the kind of gathering, though, that you could engage in for a while and leave when you need to because, honestly, we're going to leave it a bit open-ended. We're not going to say it's going to end at such and such a time, uh, and so it'll be sort of a leave-when-you-need-to kind of gathering. A team of folks around Journey have been praying and working on this for a season. I think it's going to be a, a quite fantastic God-honoring evening, and I just uh, urge you, like, don't miss it, 7 o'clock on uh, Tuesday night. I'm going to take a liberty right now. I, I don't always do what I'm about to do, but... Uh, <laughs> If you've been following my Facebook and uh, Twitter posts for the last, oh, maybe 10 days or so, you'll know that our friend James Schlender, who's one of our uh, violinists who plays on our worship team, 17-year-old kid who had open-heart surgery, uh, and, and it, it, uh, it didn't go necessarily great, especially in the recovery phase, and uh, there were some difficult moments, and I want you to know that James is here, right? Like, right, turn around, there he is. Will you give us a wave? Yeah. Yeah, way to go. <clears throat> And uh, we celebrate what God's done in you, and we're just going to continue to pray you, James, to healing, and we're excited about all of that. Really great to have you today. Uh, we've been in this series that we call Sticky Questions That Christians Hope No One Will Ask, and it's a series that's designed to better help all of us answer some of the most challenging questions asked of Christians about Christianity uh, and we're going to finish this series uh, this weekend. We're going to finish it with something a bit uh, unique. And some of you have been asking the question, uh, look, I have these friends or family members or colleagues from work or classmates or roommates or whatever who I really want to engage in a faith conversation with, but I know that they're skeptical. Like, that's the posture that they come at all of this from. They are skeptics. They don't even believe there's a God. They definitely aren't in the realm of believing that the Bible is the word of God. And so how and where in the world do I start with them? How do I start even a faith conversation with them? How do I even engage them in a conversation about belief that there is a God? And those are great questions. They're fantastic. And so that's what we're going to do with the time that we have remaining here today. We're going to actually approach the possibility of the existence of God, and we're not going to use the sacred text. 
we're not going to use the Bible today. And just so we're all on the same page, we're real clear, this is a bit of an anomaly. We don't do this uh, every weekend. We're not going to open the Bible, and I want you to know that's intentional, and it's strategic, and it's the incredibly rare exception around here. And this is all with the purpose of helping equip us to help people in our lives take steps to approach God without using the Bible because so many people in our worlds are opposed to the Bible. They don't believe it to be true. They don't buy the deal that it's the word of God. It's not credible to them. And so we have to be able to engage them in a conversation in the place that they are at. Not just expect them to transport from where they're at to where we're, like, no. We have to meet them in the place that they are at. And so uh, to pull this off, uh, which remains to be seen, doesn't it? Uh, I drew extensively from a whole wealth of resources. Uh, a guy named Tim Keller resourced me extensively. Carl Giberson, Francis Collins, Peter Kreef, Ronald Tesselli, who are all really geniuses, and I'm not. And so uh, I'm sort of writing their coattails a bit uh, today. And just be glad, be really glad you weren't here last night. A Saturday night, because uh, I could literally, I was standing up here talking, and I was watching people's eyes sort of roll back into their heads, and so I got here very early this morning, and I cut out about seven or eight pages of stuff, so you are the beneficiaries of the Saturday night people who have gone ahead, and they deserve a raise or something, right? And here's the question that we're going to attempt to wrestle through and come to an answer of today. How can someone believe in Christianity if they don't even know or they don't even believe that God exists? How? Where do you start the faith conversation with a person who doesn't even believe that God exists? And I'm going to give you the answer right here, uh, right now. And I want this to be very, very clear. While there cannot ever be irrefutable proof for the existence of God, Many, many, many people have found very strong what we'll call clues for his reality. Divine fingerprints, if you will, all over the place. And to start the conversation, I'd like to say it this way. Imagine with me for a moment that you're in the beginning stages of a faith conversation with a very, very brilliant young person. This brilliant young person who you are friends with is entrenched in the study of the sciences, And as they study the sciences more and more, they have this sort of haunting sense that there must be a God. And that's sort of the way they say it, that there must be something else, there must be a God. And so they come to you and you begin this conversation with them about the existence of God. And the scientist looks with you at case after case after case for God's existence. And though many, many of those have a great deal of merit, the scientist finds at the end of the day that every single one of those arguments, every single one of those cases is, in their words, rationally avoidable. Rationally avoidable at some level. This deeply troubles the scientist. And here she says to you, I cannot believe in the existence of God unless I find at least one absolutely airtight proof for the existence of God. And many, many people, that would just sort of lock them up, wouldn't it? Like, where do you go? Like, what do you do? Airtight proof for the existence of God. And I want to show you, I want to give you a bridge that I think you can bridge with this person that you might be able to continue the conversation with, and it's this. Would you consider inviting and challenging your scientist friend to go back and review the lines of reasoning that they would call, quote, proofs, and instead of calling them proofs, would they begin to see them just as clues? 
Just simply clues. Not airtight proofs, just simply clues. And here's why. I believe with a whole bunch of people who are way smarter than me that an airtight proof, uh, rather than an airtight proof perspective, it's highly probable that your friend will see that cumulatively the clues for God's existence carry much weight. The clues for God's existence carry much weight. A guy named Alvin Platinga, who's a leading philosopher today, believes absolutely to the depths of his being that there are no absolute airtight proofs for God's existence that will convince every rational person. And he believes to his core there are at least two to three dozen strong to very strong arguments for the existence of God. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together today on just a few of them. I want to start number one with the Big Bang. If you're taking notes, you might write that down. The Big Bang. Rational thinking people like you and me have always been intrigued by this question, why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever thought that? Why is there something rather than nothing? And that question gets a whole lot more interesting to people in view of the Big Bang Theory. You know this. There are these reams of evidence that the universe is expanding explosively and outwardly from a single point. A guy named Stephen Hawking who made news just this week, he called the story of heaven, he called it a fairy tale. Quite interesting, he made news this week calling the story of heaven a fairy tale. But at an earlier point in time, he said almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking. A guy named Francis Collins summarizes this Big Bang clue in his book, The Language of God, which I highly recommend, The Language of God. And here's what Collins says. We have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. The universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. Collins says, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. The very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. See, science tells us that everything that we know in this world is contingent, meaning that it has a cause outside of itself. That means that the universe, which is really just an enormous pile of these contingent entities, if you will, would have had to be dependent on something outside of itself for its start. Something had to make the Big Bang happen, but what? And you ask the question, what could it possibly be but something outside of nature? This supernatural, non-contingent being that exists from itself. Now, there's a guy named Sam Harris who sits in the skeptic's chair. And he reviews Francis Collins' books. And he makes this classic objection to this big bang line of reasoning. In any case, Harris says, even if we accepted that our universe simply had to be created by an intelligent being, this would not suggest that this being is the God of the Bible says Harris. And honestly, he's right. He's absolutely right. If we're looking to the Big Bang as trying to prove the existence of a very personal God, the Big Bang will not get us all the way there. However, remember, we're just looking for clues, aren't we? We're just talking about clues. A clue that there is something besides just this natural world. This Big Bang concept can be very, very thought-provoking for many people. Number one, the Big Bang. Now let's talk about the second clue. For organic life to exist, 
These fundamental regularities and constants of physics, things like the speed of light, gravitational constant, strength of weak and uh, strong nuclear forces, must all have values that fall into an extremely narrow bandwidth. The probability that that perfect calibration happened by chance is so incredibly tiny, it's statistically negligible. Collins, again, he puts it like this. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, check this out, it looks as if it knew we were coming. It looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, Collins writes, the gravitational constant, various constants about strong and weak nuclear force, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that have these very precise values. If any of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets, no people. We're not here. Someone has said it, it's as if there were a very large number of dials that all had to be tuned within extremely narrow limits. And well, what do you know? They were. Now, doesn't it seem to you extremely unlikely that this would just happen by chance? Stephen Hawking concludes, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are absolutely enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. That's Stephen Hawking. Clearly religious implications. Elsewhere, Hawking says it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Now, this whole argument that I've been running down here, it's called the fine-tuning argument, that the universe was finely tuned and prepared for human beings. Now, as an argument, it's a quite powerful one. And we think it's quite powerful because there's this, these sort of fierce rebuttals that are being published about it all the time. There's a very, very common retort that's coming from a guy named Richard Dawkins, especially. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. I recommend every Christian should read the book. Read the book, The God Delusion. And Dawkins makes this case that for all we know, there are trillions and trillions of universes out there. This is his case. This is his argument. And he goes on to say that given the enormous number of universes existing over enormous amounts of time and space, that it is absolutely inevitable that some of them are fine-tuned enough to sustain our kind of life. The one we're in is one. And so he says, well, look, here we are. Now, as a proof, the fine-tuning argument is rationally avoidable. Absolutely, yes. But get this, there isn't a single shred of proof that there are trillions of universes and there's no way to prove that there aren't either. No way to prove that there are, no way to prove that there aren't. But the fine-tuning argument carries this extreme credibility as a clue. See, Alvin Platinga puts it this way, I want you to imagine a man dealing himself 20 straight hands of four aces in a game of poker. Whoa, that's a good day. 20 straight hands of four aces in a game of poker. And just as his playing companions reach for their six shooters to take him out, the poker player says, now wait, 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 before you kill me, I know this looks suspicious, but what if there is an infinite number of universes so that for any possible distribution of poker hands, there's one universe in which this possibility is realized and we just so happen to find ourselves in a universe where I always deal myself four aces and I'm not cheating. Now, that argument is not going to have any effect whatsoever on the other poker players at the table. He's dead meat, isn't he? They're taking him out. 
While it is certainly technically possible that the man just happened to deal himself 20 straight hands of four aces, while you could not prove that he had cheated, really, it's just unreasonable to conclude that he hadn't. Absolutely unreasonable. A philosopher, John Leslie, poses a quite similar illustration. I want you to imagine a man who's been sentenced to be executed by a firing squad, 50 expert marksmen. All 50 sharpshooters, they fire at the man from six feet away, and not a single bullet hits him. Lucky day, right? Now, since it's possible that even 50 expert marksmen could miss from very close range, it's therefore technically possible that all 50 just happened to miss at the exact same moment. And though you couldn't prove that they all conspired to miss, it would be absolutely unreasonable to draw the conclusion that they hadn't, wouldn't it? Entirely unreasonable. In the very same way, though none of us could prove that the fine-tuning of the universe was due to some sort of intentional or intelligent design, it would be absolutely unreasonable to draw the conclusion that it was not. Third clue, moving on from the fine-tuning argument. There is something about nature that is even more striking and even more inexplicable than intelligent or intentional design, and it's this. All scientific and all inductive reasoning is based on the assumption of the regularity of the laws of nature. All scientific inductive reasoning is based on the assumption of the laws of nature. Just an example, that water boils tomorrow under the exact same conditions that it boils today. That's a law of nature. Get this, without inductive reasoning... Without that being the constant, we couldn't ever learn from our experiences, could we? We couldn't use language, and we could not even rely on our memories. And so you take all that, and most common folk find that very normal and quite untroubling. But philosophers, this is the stuff they traffic in. And so a guy named David Hume and a guy named Bertrand Russell, they're the uh, good skeptics, if you will. They found themselves deeply troubled by the fact that we haven't got the slightest idea why this thing called regularity continues to happen. Moreover, we haven't the slightest rational justification for assuming that it will continue on into the foreseeable future. And here's what you could say to that. Now follow me here. Well, the future has always been like the past in the past, right? You could argue that. But Hume and Russell, they're going to push back and they're going to say, no, you, you can't say that because you're assuming the very thing that you're trying to prove. You're assuming the very thing that you're trying to establish. And so to say it another way would be to say it this way. Science cannot prove the continued regularity, the continued law of nature. It can only take it on faith. Science can only take that on faith. And so that means that as a proof for the existence of God, the regularity of nature, the laws of nature, they're absolutely escapable, certainly. You can always say, well, we do not know why things are as they are. And lots of us do that, don't we? We kind of go like, we shrug our shoulders and say, I, I can't explain that. I have not a clue. But as a clue, in this case, for God, it's quite helpful, isn't it? This regularity of nature, the laws of nature, why things remain constant, on and on and on. Clue number four. I love what Leonard Bernstein says about the effect of Beethoven. Do you guys like Beethoven's music? Like you listen to, yeah, some Beethoven fans out there, sweet. Some people call him Beethoven. Beethoven. Here's what Leonard Bernstein said about 
Beethoven's music, the effect that it has. Beethoven turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, Bernstein said. That's the word. When you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant in that context, then chances are you're listening to Beethoven. Melodies, fugues, rhythms, leave them to the rest of the composers. Our boy Beethoven, he has the real goods. Get this, watch this. Beethoven has the stuff of heaven, Bernstein says. The power to make you feel at the finish something is right in the world. There is something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never, ever let us down. And so I just want you to listen to this, Beethoven. just a sense of rightness, the note that follows the note that follows the note that follows the note. And you see, if there is no God, and everything in the world is just the product of, in Russell's words, an accidental co-location of atoms, then there's no actual purpose for which any of us were made. We're just accidents. Every single one of us, every single person who's ever lived, we're just accidents. And if we're see just the product of accidental natural forces, then that thing that we call beauty, music like Beethoven, is nothing more than a neurologically hardwired response to a particular set of data points. You only find certain scenery to be beautiful because you have ancestors who knew that you would find food there and that they survived because of that neurological feature that we now carry as well. In the same way, though, music feels significant. That significance, it's just an illusion, according to Russell. Love, too, that's just an illusion. If we're just the result of these blind natural forces, then what we call love is simply biochemical response inherited from ancestors who survived because that trait helped them to survive. Leonard Bernstein is testifying to the fact that even though he is a skeptic of faith, believes that beauty and love are merely bio- biochemical responses, 
Even he admits that in the presence of great art and great beauty, we inescapably feel that there is real meaning in life, that there is truth, there is justice, stuff that will not ever let us down, that love actually does mean everything. And Bernstein, who, by the way, he's not an orthodox religious person by any stretch of the imagination, he himself can't even refrain from using the word heaven when talking about the music of Beethoven. And he's saying, in essence, I might be a secular materialist who believes that truth and justice, good and evil, are complete and total illusions, but in the presence of great art and great natural beauty, my heart, it tells another story. That's what he's confessing. And the skeptic pushes back, and they say, well, so what? Just because we feel something doesn't make it so. But we're not just talking about feelings, though. What is evoked in beauty experience is more, is more accurately an appetite or desire, isn't it? That's what's in view. It's an appetite or a desire. We not only feel the reality, but we feel the absence of the thing that it is that we're longing for. St. Augustine in his confessions, he reasons that these unfillable, unfulfillable desires are clues to the reality and existence of God. Just because we feel the desire for a steak dinner, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get a steak dinner, does it? And while hunger certainly doesn't prove that a particular meal will be procured. Doesn't the very appetite for food mean that food exists? Isn't it true that the innate desires correspond to real objects that can satisfy them, whether it's sexual desire, physical appetite, tiredness, relational desires, so on and so forth? Doesn't the unfulfillable longing evoked by beauty qualify as an innate desire then? We have this longing, all of us do, for joy, for love, for beauty. No quantity or quality of food, sex, or friendship success can ever satisfy. We want something that nothing in this world can satisfy. We want something that nothing in this world can possibly fulfill. Isn't that in and of itself a clue that this something that we want, this something that we long for exists out there? That unfulfillable longing qualifies as a deep, innate human desire which in my view makes a major clue, is a major clue that God actually exists. One more, and we're going to close with this one, and this one's really, really important, so sit up and pay attention, especially on this one, because there's this very, very influential school of thought in our culture, and it claims to have all the answers to all of these clues that we've been talking about today. It's called the School of Evolutionary Biology. You've probably heard of it. The School of Evolutionary Biology. And what the School of Evolutionary Biology claims is that every single thing about us can be explained as a function of natural selection. A guy named Daniel Dennett, he's one of the leading champions of this explanation for God, and he claims if we have any religious feelings, it's only because these traits helped certain people survive their environment in greater numbers and therefore passed that genetic code on to us. He sums it up this way. Everything we value from sugar to sex and money to music to love and to religion, we value for reasons. Lying behind and distinct from our reasons, our actual evolutionary reasons, these free-floating rationales that have been endorsed by natural selection, he says. And again, there's another fierce debate raging on this front, because basically evolutionary theorists are saying that our capacity to believe in God is hardwired into our physiology, because it was directly or indirectly associated with traits that helped our ancestors adapt to their environment. 
That's why they say that arguments for God appeal to so many of us. It's hardwired into us. That's all there is to it. The clues, they say then, are just clues to nothing. But before you give this argument, what they call the clue-killing argument, too much credit, we see a fatal contradiction in the clue-killing argument. And that contradiction is actually another clue for God from where we sit. In Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, he admits that since we're just the result of natural selection, we cannot entirely trust in our own senses. That's because evolution is only interested in preserving adaptive behavior, not belief. One way to say it is to say it this way, paranoid false beliefs are very often more effective in helping you survive than accurate beliefs are. And so you see the implications of what they're saying. It's this. Evolution can only be trusted to give us cognitive faculties that help us live on, not provide us ones that can give us an accurate or true picture of the world around us. To say it another way would be to say it this way. Evolutionists say that if God makes sense to us, it's not because he's really there. It's only because that belief that he's there helped us survive, helped our ancestors survive, and therefore we are hardwired for it. Natural selection. But there's a fatal flaw in this clue-killing argument, and it's this. If we cannot trust our belief-forming faculties to tell us the truth about God, why would we trust them to tell us the truth about anything, including evolutionary science? If our cognitive faculties only tell us what we need to survive, not what is true, why trust anyone about anything at all? And so you see what's happening Many, many skeptics of faith in God, they're applying a scalpel of skepticism to what our minds tell us about God, but not to what our minds are telling us about evolutionary science itself, which all lands in this place of having to say, if the skeptics say what our brains tell us about morality and love and beauty are not real, It's just a set of chemical reactions designed to pass along our genetic code to the next generation, then so is what their brains are telling them about their view of the world. So let's review. The very existence of the world via the Big Bang, the very first clue to which the skeptic responds, that does not in any way prove that God exists. The second clue, that fine-tuning argument, the fine-tuning of the universe, this one in a trillion, trillion chances that our universe can support organic and human life, to which the skeptic responds, that does not prove God. The third clue is this regularity of nature, that all scientific and inductive reasoning is built on this continuing forever and ever, to which the skeptic responds, that does not prove God. Beauty and meaning is another clue. To which the skeptic responds, that does not prove God. To which, Christians, we must admit, absolutely, you're right. None of these clues absolutely prove the existence of God in an airtight, rationally avoidable way. And, and, it's a big and, any skeptic who is being intellectually honest has to admit that the cumulative effect of those clues are, in the words of one man, provocative and potent. And though we could say that the secular view of the world is rationally possible, it does not make as much sense 
of all those clues as the view that God exists does. They're clues. And the theory that there is a God who made the world accounts for the evidence of the clues so much better than the theory that there is no God, I would say, and so would a whole bunch of other people. That's enough. Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside, and I just invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and go to prayer if you would. Just get real quiet before the Lord and give these things up to him. Ask him to speak into your heart and into your soul and into your mind. And so, God, we say, here we are, choosing to trust you, choosing to believe in you, choosing to take that step of faith to say, yes, you actually exist and that you do actually love us and that you are involved in our lives and that you did love us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live to show us what life in your kingdom is meant to be like. And then, God, he died willingly. He gave his life up for us to bring us to you, God, to make a way. And that reality that you love people is what compels us to press into stuff like this. And it's thick and it's deep and it's heady and it's dense. And yet, God, the reason we press in is because we want people to know you. Eternity is a long, long time. And we do not want anybody in our world to spend forever apart from you. And so it's our commitment to you that we'll engage in stuff like this. That we'll do the hard homework, that we'll press in, that we'll ask you to teach us, that we'll read the books, so that we can have the conversations with the skeptics that actually reflect you in spectacular ways. God, honestly, we don't want to embarrass you. We don't want to trivialize you. We don't want to make you look silly. We want to have frank engagements with skeptics that actually reflect you just as you are. Beautiful, magnificent, above all, outside of all, in all. And God, that that would be our burden because we know that it's yours. Give us opportunity, Jesus, even this week to have these kinds of conversations. Maybe we've been hesitant. God, would you give us the confidence via your Holy Spirit to just press in, to shrug our shoulders and say, you know, I can't answer that. But I'll check it out. I'll look. I'll investigate. And actually do it and follow up and follow through. Because we want people to know you, Jesus. That's our goal.